Why are conspiracy theories so prevalent these days, or so it seems, especially in a supposedly developed country like the United States? One factor is that, from time to time, the powers that be do something that is, in fact, horrendous. So if they'll do that, the reasoning goes, what else might they be willing to do? This is the shameful story of a secret medical experiment that spans 40 years with overtones of both race and class, and a classic example of just what some people will be willing to do once they have otherized a group of their fellow humans. This is the story of the Tuskegee study, a true thing that happened because the world is weird. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. In late 1972, just as the Watergate scandal was really beginning to unfold, the New York Times published an article with details supplied by a whistleblower about a secret 40-year-long syphilis study involving African-American men conducted without their knowledge or informed consent and who were denied treatment for their illness. The Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male, a clinical study conducted in Tuskegee, Alabama, between 1932 and 1972, by the United States Public Health Service, which is a federal agency. The study was conducted in cooperation with Tuskegee University, which is a black college. What's the big deal about syphilis? I mean, it's not like it's cancer or some life-threatening disease, right? Well, let's take a look at that and try and answer the question, what, what is, is syphilis? Syphilis. Syphilis. syphilis? syphilis is a bacterial infection that's usually transmitted sexually, though it can also go from mother to child during pregnancy or during the birthing process. There are four stages to syphilis. Initially, there's what's called primary syphilis. Usually, you just get one sore, one to two centimeters in diameter, not very painful or not painful at all, not itchy. Usually on the genitals, there could be more than one. So it's just a kind of a warning sign. Four to ten weeks after primary infection, you then get secondary syphilis. A rash appears, again non-itchy, often on the palms of the hands or on the feet, sometimes on the trunk of the body. You might get sores in the mouth or on the genitals. At this stage, it is very contagious. It can also cause fever, sore throat. It can cause hair loss, weight loss, headaches. Sometimes it can also include inflammation of the liver, inflammation of the joints, inflammation of the optic nerve, or uh, inside the eye you can have problems, or the cornea of the eye. It can lead to kidney disease, a swelling of tissues around the bones, and other things that make life basically very unpleasant. 
The next stage is called latent, so it kind of goes into a latent period where there are few or maybe even no symptoms, and this can last for many, many years. And for some people, that's the whole story. But about somewhere between 15 and 40% of people who go into the latent syphilis stage then get what's called tertiary syphilis, somewhere between 3 and 15 years after the primary infection. Now it gets quite bad. Soft growths start to appear on the skin or on the bones or on the liver or honestly anywhere, inside or outside the body. Heart problems can develop, neurological problems, bladder incontinence, a greatly increased chance of stroke, inflammation of the spinal cord, and cranial nerve palsy, which causes seizures. People in this stage can exhibit dementia, delusions, the seizures, personality changes, psychosis, and depression. Walking is often difficult and very painful. Eyesight impairment and even blindness can result, as can hearing loss. This final stage is sometimes called the great imitator because it often mimics other diseases as well, making it very hard to treat. If you're born with it, which means you got it from your mother, your mother had it and then she passed it on to you either in the womb or during birth, you could be born with an enlarged liver or spleen with rashes and fevers, lung inflammation, central nervous system infection, a nose condition, which is known as saddle nose, where your nose is basically sort of collapsed on itself, an enlarged clavicle bone that sticks way out. Your tibia can become convexly malformed, which means it sort of bows outward, and this is known as saber shin. Swellings of the joints, especially the knees, but also the ankles and wrists and elbows and fingers, and a host of other problems. Syphilis was first recorded in Europe in 1494-1495 in Naples during a French invasion. The French called it the Italian disease and the Italians called it the French disease. But it became a major health issue in Europe, sometimes called the Great Pox. In the 1940s, when penicillin started being used widely, infection rates went way down, but it was still a major problem. In 1990, there were 202,000 deaths from syphilis-related complications worldwide. As recently as 2012, it was estimated that 0.5% of all adults are infected with syphilis. And in 2015, the numbers are there were around 45.4 million people infected with it and 107,000 deaths from it. Its mortality rate is anywhere from 8 to 58% depending on a number of factors and there is still no vaccine for it. So, syphilis isn't really that harmless after all. We're going to now look at a timeline of syphilis and this study, starting in the early 20th century. In 1905, the organism responsible for infection was identified, and the next year, the Wasserman test was developed, though it often gave false positives, so it wasn't great. In 1909, the first treatment really became available, which was a synthetic arsenic. This, interestingly enough, is the very first modern chemotherapeutic agent to be used. In 1926, the United States started major health initiatives, and syphilis was identified as a very major health issue. An estimated 35% of the population of reproductive age in 1926 had it. In 1928, the Oslo study of untreated syphilis coming out of Norway was published. This study was a retrospective study, so what it did is it looked back at anecdotal evidence of patients who had syphilis and had remained untreated for a period of time, so it was after-the-fact stuff, trying to analyze what the symptoms were, what 
happened to it or because it has such a long shelf life. In 1929, they started using two metals in treatments, mercury and bismuth. Bismuth is probably well known for being in Pepto-Bismol. That's why the name. Mercury is extremely toxic. Bismuth is fairly mild, but it can cause kidney damage. So again, not the greatest treatment. Using mercury and bismuth gave a less than 30% cure rate. Treatment was often long, sometimes toxic, sometimes fatal, but they're trying to get a handle on it. Then, of course, in October, the stock market crashes and the Great Depression begins. And researchers are reduced to just kind of following around men who have been identified as having syphilis but are untreated and just kind of noting down what happens to them. They did this in an effort to show how prevalent it was and how serious it was so that maybe they could get their funding back. And now we come to the study itself. So in 1932, a public health service officer named Telefero Clark decided he wanted to do a six to nine month long study and then come up with a treatment plan, which would then be administered. This, as opposed to the Oslo study of a few years before, he wanted this to be what's known as a prospective study, which would then look at the situation now and try and predict what would happen in the future and then develop treatments to stop those things from happening. He learned early on that some people involved in the study intended to lie to the subjects, and he really, really disagreed with this. Again, it was supposed to be for six to nine months. It got extended, but after a year, he retired because he didn't agree with the methodologies. One of the key members at the beginning of this is a man named Thomas Perrin Jr. He was another public health service officer, and he's often credited with the whole non-treatment part of this. The way the study actually happened, unlike the original intention, was that we're going to follow these people around, but we're not going to treat them. This was his idea. He chose Macon County in Alabama as the ideal place and Negroes, quote-unquote, as the ideal subjects. Mr. Perrin Jr. would go on to become Surgeon General in 1936, staying in that position until 1948. So one might say he was rewarded for his efforts. Many of the researchers thought they're not really harming the subjects since they were poor and black, so they were probably never going to actually receive treatment anyway, and the knowledge that they gathered from observing them and testing them would benefit all mankind. Kind of a noble sacrifice kind of an idea, except that they didn't actually tell them what they were doing. The on-site director was a man named Dr. Raymond H. Vondelaer, and he's the one who came up with the consent policies, which we'll talk about in a minute, and he would stay in the study until 1943. So the study began. 600 poor sharecroppers from Macon County were chosen. Sharecropper means that you get to live on land and use the land in exchange for giving the landowner a share of the crops, very often a large share of the crops. Landowners often also got to decide what you grew on that land and how you did it, and they also sold or rented equipment to the resident workers. So it's not really slavery, and it's not really serfdom, but it kind of is. So they choose 600 poor blacks who are sharecroppers from Macon County, Alabama. 399 of them had syphilis. 201 of them did not. Now, the men were not told that they were being looked at for their syphilis. They were told that they were being treated for something which was known as bad blood, which was a generic lay term for a whole bunch of issues. In exchange for participating, they would get... 
free hot meals when they came to be tested, free rides to and from the clinic, so they pay for your bus fare, come pick you up, so you weren't out of pocket for that, medical care for minor things, also free, as well as free burial service for when they finally passed on, which may sound funny, but it does cost money to bury somebody, and these were very, very poor people. So to get all this, all they had to do was join Miss Rivers Lodge. That's what it was called. Miss Rivers is Nurse Eunice Rivers, who was also African-American. She was a nurse at Tuskegee University, and she became the chief continuity person for the entire 40-year period of the study. They were told that it would last for six months, but it went on for 40 years through seven presidents. Started under Hoover, then FDR, then Truman, Eisenhower, JFK, LBJ, and finally Nixon. The treatments that they came in for were actually diagnostic spinal taps, which are quite painful. So that's how it starts. It's supposed to start off for six to nine months. They lie to them, telling them one thing when in fact it's for another. The guy who founded it quit, and it went on. In 1936, they published their first major paper, but it was criticized as it was unclear in the paper if the men were actually receiving treatment or not. Local doctors were contacted by the people in charge of the study and told that they were not to treat the subjects under any circumstances for syphilis or anything related to syphilis. This includes the 201 control subjects who were the men who were involved in the study who did not have syphilis. The idea at this point was that they would simply keep tabs on the subjects and follow them around until they died. In 1943, Congress passed the Henderson Act. The Henderson Act mandated testing and treatment for all venereal diseases. So at this point now, the study's been going on for 11 years, they should have realized, oh, there's a federal law now mandating that we treat these people. But they did not. In 1945, just after the war, penicillin was a big lifesaver during the war, and it became the treatment of choice all across the country. In medical facilities across the country, Compliance with the Henderson Act becomes rather routine, but not for this study. The participants of the Tuskegee study are excluded. In 1947, the United States Public Health Service sets up rapid treatment centers for syphilis in various locations around the country, and syphilis rates decrease because of these, which means more testing more often, and the use of penicillin. But subjects of the Tuskegee study are not treated and are not allowed to go to these treatment centers. Dr. John H. Heller, who had been Vendelier's assistant, is the one who kept pushing for not letting them get treated because the data that they gathered then would be null and void. They would not know the long-term effects of syphilis if they couldn't see long-term cases. So it continues through the end of the 40s, through all of the 50s, into the 60s. In 1966, some people involved with the study or who knew about the study began to raise some ethical concerns. One of those people was a San Francisco social worker and epidemiologist named Peter Buxton, who was of Jewish and Czech descent, and he was working for the Public Health Service. He filed a formal protest, but that protest was rejected because the study was still ongoing. In 1969, the CDC said that this study was important and they got support from the local medical societies to continue it. 
1972, Mr. Peter Buxton of San Francisco finally decides he's had enough. He leaks information about the experiment to Washington Star reporter Gene Heller, who is no relation to Mr. Heller mentioned before. The story goes out over the AP wire and also goes to the New York Times. It becomes front page news, temporarily pushing Watergate aside. Senator Ted Kennedy forms a panel to investigate the matter. The panel finds that the men participated willingly, even though they were never actually told the actual purpose of the study or that they were even in a study at all. Remember, they thought they were being treated for quote-unquote bad blood. They were being given free medical care because they were poor. So, in fact, they had been misled and they did not have all the facts before they gave their consent. This is what the panel finds. As a result, the Tuskegee study is terminated in November. And now, of course, there's blowback. The next year, in 1973, Congress holds hearings and a class action lawsuit on behalf of the participants and their families is filed. In 1974, just one year later, an out-of-court settlement is reached to the tune of $10 million and also lifetime medical care for all still-living participants. In 1975, wives, widows, and children of the participants are added to the settlement so they can also receive benefits and medical care. In 1979, because of this experiment, something called the Belmont Report is published, which outlines guidelines and ethical principles for research involving humans. It establishes there must be informed consent, risk assessment, and fair selection of subjects, like you can't just choose 600 poor black sharecroppers all from Macon County. In 1996, the National Bioethics Advisory Commission is established by President Bill Clinton. This expires in 2001. On May 16, 1997, President Clinton officially apologizes on behalf of the nation for the Tuskegee study. In 2000, the Office of Human Research Protections is formed, created by the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Donna Shalala, with Greg Kosky as director. This office still exists. It's a federal office. In 2001, once the Advisory Commission is over, in November, the President's Council on Bioethics is established by President George W. Bush. This is what replaces Clinton's Bioethics Advisory Committee. Leon R. Cass is chairman. Now, Cass is an interesting guy. He's for biotech but he's not keen on what he calls medical enhancement, like elective surgeries, plastic surgeries, and so on. He likes the idea of using technology to extend life, but not for vain things. He's very against stem cell research. He supports the human cloning ban because he says it's, quote, repugnant, and he is also a biblical scholar. He is replaced in 2005 by Edmund J. Pellegrino. This guy is the former president of the Catholic University of America. He became a little bit infamous when he appeared on the Ali G. Show as part of a panel that was asked about plastic surgery, human cloning, and euthanasia. And in response to all of these, he said, it's, quote, a matter of taste, euthanasia. In 2009, President Barack Obama dissolved the council, intending to create in its place a panel that could offer actual practical policy advice rather than just these philosophical ideas. He created the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues, which was headed by Amy Gutman, and were officially disbanded on January 15, 2017, just before Donald Trump was inaugurated. 
Amy Gutman, among other credentials, is still the longest-serving president of the University of Pennsylvania. In 2004, CDC funds a $10 million agreement with the Tuskegee University National Center for Bioethics in Research and Healthcare, which opens in 2006. Later that same year, 2004, the last subject of the Tuskegee study in Alabama died. During the study, 40 wives of participants also contracted syphilis and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. Everybody involved on the patient end of things was African American. In 2009, the last widow receiving benefits dies. She died on January 27th. Right now, currently, there are 11 children of participants who are still receiving medical and health benefits from the government. Many of them have some of the physical problems that were mentioned when we were talking about what syphilis is. Dr. John Heller, who had been Vondelier's assistant, said when it all came out that they'd done nothing wrong. He said, quote, I don't see why anyone should be shocked or horrified. There was no racial side to this. It just happened to be in a black community. I feel this was a perfectly straightforward study, perfectly ethical, with controls. Part of our mission as physicians is to find out what happens to individuals with disease and without disease. Dr. Sidney Olansky, who was director of the study from 1950 to 1957, was interviewed on a show called Primetime Live in 1992. He said, yeah, they could have used white men. Quote, he says, I think it could have been if we'd had white men in the same general category, say if we had a bunch of hillbillies in West Virginia that had a lot of syphilis. Unquote. When asked about the lies that they told the study participants, he said, quote, the fact that they were illiterate was helpful too because they couldn't read the newspapers. As things moved on, they might have read newspapers and figured out or seen what was going on. When he was told that near the end of the study, many of the men started distrusting the doctors because it was going on way longer than they thought, and many of them were deteriorating physically, he insisted that they had done nothing wrong. He said about them, Something got them all heated up. They were easily swayed. They were like a pack of sheep. He also said, syphilis isn't too bad a disease. So both of these guys seem to think that it was not that they targeted African Americans, but that they targeted poor illiterate people, and that somehow that made it okay. This is not the only unethical medical experimentation done with the blessing of higher-ups in the United States government. Between 1946 and 1948, there was a similar study conducted in Guatemala, but there, the doctors didn't just choose people who already had syphilis. They purposely infected soldiers, prostitutes, prisoners, and mental patients with syphilis without their knowledge or consent, and then used antibiotics to see if any of them had any effect. These experiments were led by Dr. John Cutler, who also participated in the Tuskegee study. The Guatemala syphilis experiments resulted in 83 deaths. And this stuff's been going on for a while. There were surgical experiments in the 19th century and even in the first half of the 20th century at San Quentin Prison. There were other purposeful infections of syphilis, also hepatitis, tuberculosis, cholera, whooping cough, bubonic plague, and even live cancer cells. Bacterial sprays have, in fact, been sprayed over civilian populations. There were human radiation experiments, chemicals like sulfur mustard and nerve agents in something called Operation Top Hat, Project Bluebird, MK Ultra, and there were even outright torture experiments that were conducted into the 21st century. 
That's going to be a whole separate episode, a roundup of medical atrocities. But for this one, we're looking at specifically this one study, the Tuskegee study. So it all comes out. They get some kind of compensation. They're apologized to by a president. I suppose that's all right. And bioethics committees are, are set up. So while many of the doctors, who incidentally were all white, except for, of course, Miss Rivers, who was African-American and participated all the way through, many of the white doctors seem to think that it was not racial at all. But many people in the African-American community, needless to say, didn't take it that way. And many still don't. They see it as just part of a pattern of racially motivated abuse by those in power, including the medical establishment. Let's not forget, during slavery, often the bodies of dead slaves were disinterred for medical dissections to educate white doctors. A psychological derangement was invented by the medical authorities called drapetomania, which was also known as runaway slave syndrome. The idea being that if you were a slave and you ran away, you must be mentally ill. And the treatment was to amputate the slave's feet and or hands. So if it's a psychological problem, why do you have to cut their feet off? Oh, so they can't run away. I get it. After the Civil War and during Reconstruction, white doctors in the U.S. said freed blacks would be unable to cope with freedom because their minds could not grasp the concept. And even during the Civil Rights Movement, and remember, the Tuskegee study goes on all through the Civil Rights Movement. During this time, white doctors would sometimes classify black activists as schizophrenics or paranoics in an effort to discredit them and remove them from society. Nineteen seventy two this comes out. So it really shouldn't be that big a surprise that when AIDS, HIV and AIDS hits the scene in the eighties, and it turns out that a disproportionately large number of people who are affected are African American, the community already has quite a bit of distrust built up. Even as recently as 2018, according to the CDC, African Americans in 2018 made up 42% of new HIV cases, even though they're only 13% of the overall population in the United States. That seems like a mismatch. The CDC also says that one in seven of those that have HIV didn't even know they had the virus. African Americans in the United States today are 25% more likely to die of cancer than white people. Today, black people with mental disorders are slightly less likely to be prescribed what are called atypical antipsychotics than whites, and much less likely to be prescribed clozapine. Only 10.3% of African Americans are prescribed that, whereas 15.3% of white people who have the same disorders are prescribed it. That's less by a third for the African Americans. Blacks tend to receive lower triage scores in emergency rooms. This means that the medical personnel rate the complaint to be less serious. Black people tend to wait for ER treatment and even stroke medications much longer than their white counterparts. Studies also show that doctors spend less time with their black patients because they feel the black patients are less honest about their symptoms. This is especially true for things like schizophrenia, which don't have physical manifestations. In 2007, a study was conducted that suggested that African Americans and Latinos and Latinas are more distrustful of their physicians than any other ethnic groups. You might be tempted to say then it goes both ways. They don't trust the doctors, and it seems like the doctors also don't really trust them. However, the study goes on to say that people with lower socioeconomic status, income, education, no health insurance, seem to distrust doctors more than other groups, regardless of ethnicity. So, in fact, it might not be a race thing, it might be a class thing, and the fact that African Americans are disproportionately poor. 
As of 2018, 38.1 million Americans live in poverty. That's a rate of 11.8%. Poverty threshold right now for a family of four is $25,700. Included in that 11.8% are people who live in what's called deep poverty, which is less than half of the threshold. So 5.3% of Americans or 17.3 million people live in deep poverty. So in addition to that, another 29.9%, that's 93. 6 million people in the United States live close to poverty or in what's called near poverty, which is defined as less than twice the poverty threshold. So 41.7% of Americans altogether live either in poverty or near poverty. More women than men live in poverty. Single people tend to be in poverty more often than married couples. Single parents with no wife uh, rate 12.7% of them live in poverty, but single parents with no father living in poverty is 24.9%. People with disabilities, interestingly, are the highest percentage of people living in poverty. 25.7% of people with disabilities live in poverty. By race, when we look at poverty in America, Native Americans are the highest with 25.4% of them living in poverty. And then African Americans come next at 20.8%. Again, they only make up 13% of the population. Hispanics are next or Latinos are next at 17.6%. And then whites and Asians are tied at 10.1% each. So maybe it's true. Maybe the doctors running the Tuskegee study really were just targeting poor, illiterate people who just didn't know any better. And maybe, as Dr. Heller said, their skin color was just incidental. Or maybe the inherent prejudices of institutionalized racism, which the doctors may not have been consciously aware of because they live in a country that's filled with it, especially in a place like Alabama with colored drinking fountains, colored bathrooms, colored sections of the bus. And yeah, they could have gone out after those West Virginia hillbillies, but instead they chose these black sharecroppers from Macon County instead. And it may very well have been a subconscious racism that informed that choice. Either way, it really doesn't make it any more ethically defensible if they were targeting the poor instead of a particular race. The good news is, as a result of this coming out and as a result of that whistleblower, the United States started paying more attention to bioethics, kind of. The bad news is, is the fact that things like this actually do happen sets up a system of distrust, which means that in the case of medical care, people are not getting the care that they need. And it also sets up a mindset for further conspiracy thinking. And of course, let's not forget the human suffering element. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearing House. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.